Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode six in the book of 1 Peter entitled, A Good Life Leads to Evangelistic Opportunities, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, these are marvelous verses in which the Apostle Peter gives the Christians that he's writing to a description of a good life, right from the beginning of the section, verse 8, up to the end, a life, a good life that results in opportunities to explain the gospel to people who ask us to give a reason for the hope that's in us. So we talk about the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness, the external journey of gospel advance. In this text today, we're going to see a beautiful harmonization of the two, how our own personal piety and good living results in opportunities to share the gospel. Well, so that we have a sense of the passage as a whole, I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Andy, what does verse 8 teach us about a healthy local church? And how is a harmonious and loving local church a powerfully effective weapon in the Lord's hands for evangelism. Yeah, I actually think it is the most powerful weapon for the advancement of the gospel. A healthy local church in which the spiritual gifts are flowing, brothers and sisters are united with one another, people on the outside are able to see that the way that we love one another, Jesus said, by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So we see that in the account in the book of Acts of the early church as the church were were loving one another, they were um, in harmony with one another, they were devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the fellowship breaking of bread and prayer Uh, they didn't claim that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had all of that was extremely attractive to outsiders who are watching that who would then come visit we see that that uh, mentality in first corinthians about the speaking in tongues Mm. and prophecy and paul was concerned there about outsiders that came in and if you're speaking in tongues but not interpreting they will come in and think you're out of your minds but if you're prophesying the outsider who comes in observes and is cut to the heart and says surely god is in this place Mm. so the idea is you're on display So a healthy local church is a powerful weapon in the hands of God for the advancement of the kingdom of God. If 
the members of that church do these kinds of things. Like Peter says, uh, he says, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble, this translation. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is in harmonious living, there's a genuine oneness. Uh, Jesus prays for that in John 17. May they be brought to complete or perfect unity to let the world know that you sent me. So as we get along with each other, as we are in harmony with each other, we genuinely love each other, that is a powerful witness to the observing world. By the way, I think all these verses here are in the light of an unbelieving and even hostile audience. Hmm. I think the, the, as we read over that and I'm looking at, yeah, it's not just good Christian living in abstraction. It's good Christian living on display yeah. to a skeptical, hostile, and perhaps even persecuting audience. That unifies these verses. So if we are harmonious with each other, we love each other, we're, not, we're, we're sympathetic with each other, we rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, we nurse the sick back to health, we care for the widow and the orphan, that kind of thing, that's powerful when people watch that. You know, Andy, you've also talked about how powerful it will be one day uh, when we're glorified to not be interested in self. And I just mm -hmm. think of the way that these mm -hmm. are outward focused and how the gospel really uh, begins that process of redeeming us from such mm -hmm. a vile, uh, radical commitment mm -hmm. to our own self-interest, right? That sure. we would look to the interests of others, that we would begin to look like Christ in the way we interact with one another yeah. before a watching world. And that's so countercultural mm -hmm. to even the things that we see around us. It's very powerful. Uh, I don't know what your translation is there at the end of verse uh, eight, but mine says, uh, and humble, to mm. be humble. Is that yeah. the same thing? A All humble right. mind, yeah. A humble mind, and so that's the very thing where we don't think too much of ourselves. Mm. Um, it, it, we're not always asking what's in it for me. Yeah. As Philippians says, each of you should look not only into your own interests, but also the interests of others. It's very Christ-like. Conversely, infants come into the world. My, my uh, granddaughter was just born uh, a month ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, sweet as she is, fanatically committed to self. <laughs> right. uh, inarticulate, doesn't know words, but she knows what she wants. Um, and it's, there's no fault in it, it's just how babies are. Mm -hmm. But we are like that and you have to train children through good parenting and through consistency and discipline and examples to teach them to not just think about the, themselves all the time. It's a long, hard journey of parenting, but that's really very much the issue. So for us as Christians to actually be exemplifying that, to mm -hmm. be genuinely humble in our mind, to think others are more important than, than we are. Yeah, it's so good. So if verse eight is Peter positively saying, you ought to look like and do these, these sort of things, Verse 9 uh, is Peter forbidding Christians from doing things like repaying evil for evil and reviling for reviling. Why is it essential for Christians to forsake this taking of revenge or repaying evil for evil? And what's the blessing that Peter has in mind in this passage? Yeah, so I think verse 8, I'm, I'm sensing that verse 8 is an intramural verse. It's, it's just what we do with each other. Hmm. Whereas verse nine is more what we're going to do with the hostile, onlooking, unbelieving audience. Mm -hmm. I think verse nine could relate to intramural as well, that we're gonna, not gonna repay evil for evil within the church. But I really think Peter's assuming there's gonna be evil and insults and, and all of that hostility yeah. um, within the brothers and sisters. We're not looking for that. So I think this is as the whole book of Peter seems to be, aliens and strangers, exiles in this world, we're in a hostile place, we might have a hostile master or an unbelieving husband or some situation like that, persecuting hostile outsiders, how should we act? I think that's the same motif here. 
So in this case, he's saying, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay insult with insult, but seek to bless. So that's the idea of like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, as he sinks down under the stones with which they're executing him, saying, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. This kind of gracious forgiveness. Um, As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, if you love your those who love you, what reward will you get? Pagans do that. If you love only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Hmm. Uh, the, the tax collectors, everybody does that. But, but, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise in the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He loves his enemies, so you should love them as well. So pray for them seek their benefit and their blessing, don't repay evil, don't seek vengeance in reference to your persecutors. So what then, what is the blessing that that brings Mm. that he talks about at the end of verse nine when he says, on the contrary, bless. So Mm -hmm. it seems like if you're not gonna do that, you ought to bless those who persecute you, like you said. Mm -hmm. Um, What is this when he says that you may obtain a blessing? Well, I really think it's both here in this life and in the world to come, both. Mm. Because uh, the, the Psalm 34 passage that he's about to quote here yep. really seems to talk about a blessed life here on earth. So if you are this kind of a person, you're free from blame, you're not angry at people, you try to bless everyone, even those who hate you, but certainly those who love you, you try to bless everyone. Um, you are living a good life. There's, there's no, you, you're, you can't have a better life and God will bless you. We'll read and get go through it, but you're going to love life and you're going to see good days and you're going to inherit a blessing from the Lord and he's going to be attentive to your prayers and answer them and you're just going to feel the hand of the blessing of God in this world. You can't do any better. Mm. Now, we're already assuming that there's going to be persecution and suffering and insults and all that, so it's not like some perfect life. You're already in heaven, but inside your own heart, you're at peace. You're, you're storing up treasure in heaven and, and you're, you're seeing God answer prayer. And then, as I just mentioned a second ago, storing up treasure, then in heaven, everything starts getting blessed. That's the perfect blessing. Up in heaven, you get rewards for being persecuted. Yeah. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Mm. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You look at that and you're saying, okay, that's the blessing I really want. I think it's both. We get some blessing now. As Peter says in another place, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you when you're being persecuted. Like Stephen, he's arrested. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. His conscience is clear. He's ready to die. He wants to bless them. If he can lead them to Christ, if not, he will um, be re- rewarded in heaven. But then in heaven, when you get to heaven, you get all of these incredible rewards, um, the praise of God, all of that. So that's the blessing that we seek to inherit. That's good. Now you mentioned that verses 10 through 12 is a quotation from Psalm 34. Mm-hmm. How is the promise in these verses a conditional one and what conditions must we meet in order to be blessed by the Lord? Yeah, it really does feel like the blessings and curses um, that you get in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm where he lists uh, the blessings, and you'll be blessed when you sit down and blessed when you rise up, blessed when you go out and blessed when you come in. You know, your kneading trough and, and your your uh, barn will be blessed. Uh, your wife will be blessed when she gives birth to children. Your your uh, cows will, will bear calves and, and they won't die. Uh, just all these agrarian blessings, blessings for obedience. So it's conditional, conditional blessings, curses for disobedience. So the psalmist begins in that old covenant kind of style, 
Whoever would love life and see good days. Do you want to bless life? Well, here's some things you must do. You must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies or from deceitful speech. Um, You must turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. So these are the conditions. It's, It's basic Old Testament description of a righteous life. So look at the beginning of it. If you would love life and see good days, it's like, who wouldn't? Imagine it's like, hey, would you like to love life and see good days or hate um, life and see bad days? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yes, I'm in. I yeah. want to love life and see good days. All right. Uh, and I'll tell you what, in, in we, we've, uh, by God's grace, raised um, five children. Um, we still have one minor at home, Daphne, but we've been through um, five children. Uh, and we use this verse all the time. Mm. The funny thing about Christian parenting is there's an amazing blending of Old Covenant and New Covenant all the time. So there are conditional blessings, uh, parent to child. It's like, yeah, you can go to the party or whatever if you keep your room clean and you do your chores and all that. If not, you can't. That's pure Old Covenant blessings and curses. That's <laughs> what that is. So we use this verse a lot. Mm. If you want to love life and see good days, my wife used this expression, a circle of blessing. There would be like a, a stand in this circle. This is what God said mm. he will bless. If you step outside the circle, you're not going to get blessed. Yeah. So you want to have a good life. You want to love life and see good days, then do this. Keep your tongue from um, evil and your lips from speaking uh, lies. So it's interesting how he begins with the tongue, isn't it? What do mm. you think about that, Wes? The well, I just think of how much trouble my own tongue can get me in, whether mm-hmm. it's conflict with my wife or family uh, in the past or even in the present, how just a word is a powerful thing, both mm-hmm. for good if used well, but also can lead us into all kinds of trouble. Yeah. And it seems to compound the more you lean into it. Yeah, it's the first thing that we use to <laughs> you know to get vengeance. You think about that. So here's um, uh, Paul on trial. Mm. And uh, was it uh, high priest, uh, Caiaphas or whatever, orders that he be beaten or something like that? And Paul lashes out, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You who sit there judging me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, command that I be be beaten. You know, so one pastor called that biblical swearing. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. It's like... He's like, are you supposed to revile the high priest? And he said, I didn't, I didn't realize he was the high priest. Oh. You know, so yeah, it was that was not a great moment. Um, it just comes right out of the mouth. So if you want to be blessed while you're being, because think about what he's saying uh, back here in verse nine: Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. So just set a guard over the door of your mouth. You're not going to say that thing you want to say. Instead, you're going to um, you're going to turn away from evil speech. You're going to you're going to keep your tongue from evil. James said, if you're able to bridle the tongue and never say anything ungodly, you're a perfect man, able to keep the whole body in check. So we start with the tongue. Hmm. Well, and then he goes on to say, turn away from evil and hmm. do good, which we're like, oh, that seems like a simple command, though. How difficult for us to to turn away from evil and do yeah. good, but. He says mm. after that in verse 11, let him seek peace yeah. and pursue it. Powerful. What what does it mean to seek peace and pursue it? Very, very good verse. I love it. You know, I, just the first the first part, I want to say this one thing. It reminds me of Isaiah mm. um, where it says, come now, mm. uh, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. And he says, uh, you must seek. He says, he, he says, turn from evil. Stop doing wrong. I remember that, Isaiah. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think for the most part, not all the time, but for the most part, when we're doing wrong, we know it. Hmm. We're violating our conscience. Yeah. We know what we're doing is evil. Hmm. Stop doing that. Don't give yourself permission to do it. Turn from evil and do good. Then, as you said, seek peace and pursue it. So what does that mean to seek peace? Well, I think there's there's two aspects of peace. One is an objective status of peace with God that comes to us through faith in Christ. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So seek that peace and pursue that through faith in Christ. Come to faith in Christ, etc. But then there's a second kind of subjective peacefulness which um, has to do with a tranquil or placid spirit in the midst of circumstances where mm. you are peaceful. Um, that also has to do horizontally with seeking peace in relationships. We're seeking to be at peace with each other. If your brother sins against you, go show him his fault. If you sin against him, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Now you're at peace with him and then God will accept your gift. Mm. So live a life of peace, seek peace, go after peacefulness. Don't have strife in your marriage. Don't have strife with your in your family, with your children. Don't have strife with your neighbors, with your coworkers. Be a man, a woman of peace. I think that's what he's talking about. And pursue it, it's not gonna be easy. You gotta go after peace. Because, you know, you think about Isaiah again, where it says, um, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked are like a churning sea whose waves cannot rest. They churn up mire and muck. There mm. is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So the, the, the unbelievers don't know peace. Mm. So we have to be people of peace who are constantly seeking peace and pursuing. Now, verse 12 speaks of God's attitude toward the righteous and those who do evil. What does verse 12 teach us specifically about God and prayer? So the Lord, uh, it says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. You know, it, it means God is your father. God is your adoptive father. He's watching you and he's listening to you. And, and here it's not threatening. Mm. You know, Job at one point says, um, will you never turn away from me, O watcher of men? So he doesn't want God to look at him anymore because look what's happened to him. Mm. But Job eventually comes around to realize the eyes of the Lord are on you to bless you. He's watching you to keep you safe. He's mm. watching you to, he's studying you. You know, how precious to me are your thoughts or precious concerning me are your thoughts, O Lord. Were I to number them, they would outnumber the grains of sand in the seashore, Psalm 139. So God is watching you all the time. Or more comfortingly, we could say the Lord is watching over me to bless me. Mm. Picture a crowded playground, lots of kids playing, and parents sitting on benches, all right? Mothers, you know, and they're watching the play in general, but they're especially watching their own kids. Yeah. Both because they love them and they want to see the fun thing they have, but they want to keep them safe. Mm. And so God is watching you to bless you and to protect you. And he's, his ears are attentive to your prayers. He is, he is listening. He's ready to hear you. If you're going to live that righteous, godly life, he is ready to hear your prayers. He's ready to listen. Some people ask, does God hear the prayers of the wicked? It's like God hears everything. God's omniscient. Hmm. Every sound on planet Earth he hears. 
But that's not what you're asking. Does God hear favorably? Does he hear as if to answer their prayers? No, that's a different matter. The answer is no, because he's under no covenant obligation to hear the prayer of a wicked person. Sometimes he does and just chooses to give them blessings anyway. But here he says, you are my child. When you call on me, I will hear you and I will answer you. His ears are attentive to their prayer. Mm. So, Yeah, that, that parental image is so helpful. You think, again, the, the image of a crowded playground and a child that yells mom. Well, mm. all of them identify themselves as mom or mother. Like, they, you know, that's, that's what they would respond to. But that, the voice of that child that's, that's yeah. theirs, that they know it and respond. Yeah, yeah, but, says Peter, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so mm. that's a threat to Christians um, here, but it's especially speaking of the unbelievers. So remember the context, I think, with verse 8, then verse 9. And then, you know, he, the reason, I believe the reason Peter's even quoting Psalm 34 here is the idea of do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Well, how do you know that, Peter? Well, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil. Mm. So that's how he quotes this. It's why he quoted it. Yeah. In the context of a hostile, persecuting audience who are reviling you, don't revile back mm. because God will bless you. But look, he's actually against them. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Your little contribution to cursing them won't change anything. They're already under the wrath of God. Mm. So you actually should pity them and say, do you realize what it's like to have the face of Almighty God against you? Mm. you think of it that way, all right? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You remember that story in the book of Esther where the wicked Haman mm. had hatched a plot to destroy Mordecai, the queen's uncle and beloved, like basically surrogate father, and their entire people, not knowing the connection, Haman didn't know. But then the plot gets exposed, the king walks outside to calm down, I think. And Haman falls on the couch to plead for his life, but it's done, he's a wicked man. The king comes back in, thinks he's attacking Esther and says, will you even molest the queen? And then at that moment, the servants put a bag over his head. So to me, what does that mean? When you get the bag put over your head at the you know, parent, the implicit command of the king, mm. you're a dead man, you're dead. Yeah. Well, this is a picture of that. The face of the Lord is against you. Mm. He turns away from you and will not listen to you. Mm. So uh, to me, that's terrifying and we should pity unbelievers who are in that condition. Yeah. Now, verse 13 goes on seemingly to imply that Christians who are eager to do good will never be harmed by anyone. But mm -hmm. since Peter's already given us the example of Christ who suffered unjust mm -hmm. torture and death in 1 yeah. Peter 2, what's Peter's point in verse 13? Well, it's generally true. I think it's like the book of Proverbs. It's like a proverbial thing. Mm. Like, I, I think people just respond to goodness generally well, mm. you know? I remember... <laughs> I was uh, driving and came up to a stop a stoplight next to a car, and the car was just hugely tricked out with all kinds of stuff, special hubcaps. It, I mean, this, this guy uh, had put a ton of work and money into his car. Our windows were down, it was a nice kind of spring day. Mm. And so I looked over and, and our eyes met, and I said, really nice car. 
And you could tell from my demeanor and all that wasn't mocking. He just brightened up. <laughs> beaming. He was like, beaming. Wow. <laughs> hey, thanks, man. You know, and that was it. I've never seen him since. It was just a moment. Mm. Um, and I had a moment like that uh, recently with a, a, a person who lives near me. And, and just the ability to say I hadn't had a chance to talk since Christmas. But, hey, mm. your, your uh, Christmas tree looked beautiful through the window. I enjoyed looking at it the whole season. And he just brightened. So I think that's the general principle here, that if you are a good person and you're kind and you speak encouraging things and you try to bless people, people aren't going to beat on you. They're actually going to want to know what's up with you. So I think that's generally true. So I think we ought to go with that. Just be that kind of a person. However, there are some really twisted, evil people in this world that even if you do that for them, they'll look on it as weakness. They'll take advantage of you. They're evil. And he acknowledges it. He says, yeah, but even right. if you should suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. That's what he's getting at here. But generally, try to be good. If you're in it, it picks up on the earlier theme. If you receive a beating for doing right and you endure it, that's commendable. Mm -hmm. But if you get beaten for doing wrong, don't be surprised. Right. What do you, you expect? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So in general, live a good life and things go well. I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. And like you said, he does answer Mm -hmm. to some extent that very question when he yeah. says but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you'll be blessed it yeah. could happen and it did it happened to Stephen it happened you know I mean Job is a great example I mean what did he do wrong and all kinds of terrible things happened to him mm. so no it's different because um, yeah but I mean even then some of some of Job's persecutors were humans so the Sabaeans came in the Chaldeans yeah. whatever so I mean just because you're a good guy a good man doesn't mean you're going to have a perfect life yeah and the end of verse 14, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Before we move to 15, which yeah. is a very well-known sure. verse, especially as it relates to apologetics and how we live in this world before those who don't believe, yeah. how can we as Christians have no fear of them, nor be troubled? Yeah, this is vital. I, I think, uh, and, and Paul definitely gives us that in Philippians. He said, um, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed and you will be saved and mm -hmm. that by God. So fearlessness, absolute fearlessness in the face of overt persecution is a strong testimony. It's dying well. Mm -hmm. Die well. Die like Stephen did. Not angry, not hateful. Praying for your salvation, but unafraid to die. The people will realize I don't have that kind of confidence. I don't know how it is they're able to die so well. And they can perhaps be led to faith in Christ. But the idea here is um, don't show any fear at all. Mm. You should not fear death. You shouldn't fear anything. You really shouldn't. You fear sin, yes. Yeah. But don't fear any of the persecution. Mm. If you're actually singled out and chosen for persecution, you're blessed. You're, you're one of the unique ones chosen by God for that privileged role. Mm. So don't show fear at all. Do not fear what they're doing to you or don't fear anything. Don't fear the things they fear. Yeah. Don't be frightened at all. And right on the heels of that, then he gives that first command in mm -hmm. chapter 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How do we honor Christ the Lord as holy as verse 15 commands us to do? Right. Uh, sanctify, sanctify Jesus in your heart. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I think it's similar to the Ten Commandments. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. You honor him. Who is he? He is the, the only begotten son of God. He's the holy son of God. You're, you're reverent toward Jesus. And that's how you live your life. You speak of him reverently. I remember we were playing basketball once, a good Christian friend of mine and two, two teenagers from a, a park, and we were playing together. And this guy was saying Jesus and Christ and things like that like a swear. 
And I'll never forget Rod. He just stopped after about five minutes of this. He said, guys, kind of done. And these were teenagers. We were in there in our late, in mid to late 20s. So we were clicked up a little bit older than them. And he said, guys, let me, I need to tell you something. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He died for my sins. And he sits at, at God's right hand and reigns there. He, I honor him and worship him with every part of my life. Please stop taking his name in vain. And they did. Their eyes were like saucers. Mm. And, hey, man, I'm sorry. I did not know. So that was powerful. So the, this is in the context of wit witnessing. But mm. if you live like Jesus is holy and you, you, your deepest desire is to please him, that's powerful. Set him apart as Lord. And I think it also relates to being holy yourself, just mm -hmm. being holy in your life. Reverent yeah. Christ. Uh, be reverential of Christ as Lord. Mm. Now we mentioned that verse 15 has traditionally been mm -hmm. a central verse on the issue of apologetics, yeah. right? Making a defense for Christianity. Yeah. Why is this and how can Christians be prepared in advance to give an answer to people who mm -hmm. ask for reasons for right. our faith? This is John Frame's definition of apologetics. Hmm. It is the effort to be obedient to 1 Peter 3.15, to be prepared in advance to give a reason for the hope that you have. Hmm. That's, uh, that's just apologetics, it's, yeah. this is right down the center. So the idea is preparation, you're ready mentally, you know what kind of questions they may have, and you're ready to give reasons for those questions, to show that Christianity is reasonable. Mm. Uh, that's the idea here. So you are, are ready, you're prepared to give an answer. Now the key for me, the key uh, uh, observation I wanna make here is that you have to live in such a way that people will ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So you have to be evidently hope-filled. Mm -hmm. You have to be just a hope-filled person. You have to live like the future is bright. Yeah. Be happy. Be Christian content, uh, handle adversity well. And people will say, hey, what's up with you? You're different, and they'll ask you to give a reason for it. But yes, this is apologetics. And apologetics is a whole science. Uh, we're dealing with you know, creation versus evolution. You're dealing with uh, the Bible as a unique book. All of these things take study. But in general, just why are you so different? Why are you so happy? At least be ready for that. Give a reason for that. Well, I believe that Jesus is God and died for my sins and he rose again and he has given me full forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's why I'm happy. So at least do that. That's apologetics 101. Just start there. Yeah. And I love that definition that you even incorporated in that last answer of hope, right? That it's mm -hmm. this, this sense that the future is bright, not just in this life, but for all eternity and yeah. how different that is mm -hmm. from the world's view of hope. It's, it's short range. Sure. It's based on things that aren't promised, things that may never even come to pass. But for us as Christians, mm -hmm. the hope that we have settled because of Christ's completed work gives us that sense that the future is bright. Yeah, and I think especially in the issue of Christian suffering, um, mm -hmm. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are, you Christians are the light of the world. Mm -hmm. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, he puts it up on its stand to give light to everyone in the house. Everyone watching sees light. Well, we know that the light shines brightest in the darkness. Yeah. And so it could very well be through some specific suffering, a cancer diagnosis, the death of a child, other issues that come up that cause great sorrow. People watch you and they can see that you're filled with hope. You really believe that God is good, the future is bright, and they want you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Yeah. Now the end of verse 15 and 16 gives some specifics about even how how we ought to do this, that it's not just a haphazard or uh, even an arrogant maybe or boisterous way. He says, mm -hmm. yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, mm -hmm. so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Yeah. Why is it crucial 
uh, to give this reason for our hope with gentleness and respect for others. Why should we live in such a way that we can have a good conscience? Yeah. Well, I think this would be a, a partner verse would be speaking the truth in love. Mm. So you're speaking right doctrine, the gospel truth, but there's such a love to the way that you carry yourself. Love is patient. Love is kind. Uh, it's humble. It's tenderhearted. You're just that kind of a person. And so you're speaking the truth of the gospel, but you're doing it with, with gentleness and with humility. Yeah. And, you know, the people are like, you are, there's just something different about you, and they find it very compelling. So you've got gentleness, and you've also got respect for them. You're not stripping them down or mocking them or, or exposing them as pagans and wicked and, mm. and unbelievers and all that. You're talking to them like human beings who might very well be unconverted elect with whom you will spend eternity in heaven. So treat them with some respect and at, at least treat them with respect because they're human. They're created in the image of God in that way. Uh, and he says, keeping a clear conscience, going back to don't get beaten for doing wrong. Right. Yeah, right? Do the right thing. Keep, yeah. your, keep a clear conscience. By the way, it's an important, important doctrine. The idea is don't violate your conscience. The conscience is that inner wiring that tells you to do right and don't do wrong or tells you you have done right or that you've done wrong. Keeping a clear conscience means don't sin in ways you know are sinful. Yeah. And think about how important that is even just to the testimony of Christ's work in our life. Mm -hmm. uh, think today of so many examples of people who are, uh, you know, found to have violated their conscience perhaps mm -hmm. in certain ways uh, that have gotten mixed this truth and error. Mm -hmm. And right here, him saying so that, right, you should, you should have a clear conscience or a good conscience mm -hmm. so that when you're slandered, those who revile you, uh, or your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Mm -hmm. Really, we're representing Christ. And yeah. so the way that we live mm -hmm. ought to be such that when people slander us or revile us, yeah. they can't do that without feeling the shame of actually reviling one who's perfect yeah. and who our lives are modeled after. Very true. Uh, and it's sad when we see recently some very famous Christians who mm. were then, um, their, their wickedness was exposed, mm -hmm. and they really brought the gospel into disrepute. As uh, Romans 2 says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because yeah. of you. So that we would not live that way. That's the, the desire. Yeah, that this would be an instruction and a warning yeah. to us. Yeah. So how is verse 17, uh, the last verse that we're looking at together today, how is it consistent with Peter's whole approach to Christians in persecution? Do good. And what final thoughts do you have for us as we conclude our time together today. Well, he says it's better if it's God's will that you should suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Um, this totally blows apart the prosperity gospel. Why would it ever be God's will that you suffer? But it is. Uh, the prosperity gospel is an immature, uh, shrunken form of some aspects of Christian truth. Mm. Um, but the robust is that God often causes his people to suffer. He crushes them so that the fragrant aroma of their life can draw people to Christ. Um, and so it is better, he says, if you should, if it's God's will for you to suffer for doing good than doing evil. So clearly, it's the same simple moral framework: do good, don't do evil, and then watch what happens. So I think for me, this sums up the whole thing. We are called on within our church Christian community and within our own lives to live godly, holy lives. The outside world is watching, observing. They're mocking. They're slandering, 
they're blaspheming, they're attacking, but they're also watching you. And if you carry yourself with a certain way, some of them, not all of them, but some of them may ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have, and that might lead to their eternal salvation. Hmm, may we be ready to give that answer when they ask. Now, this has been episode six in the book of First Peter. We invite you to join us next time for episode seven entitled, Christ Died to Bring You to God, where we'll discuss First Peter chapter three, verses 18 through 22. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.